Welcome. Yeah, welcome everyone to Walking Through Worlds. And today I'm excited of having our special guest, Dr. Ray Kirkhove. Before I do though, I'd like to acknowledge our First Nations people of this land, particularly here where we're doing this beautiful recording, the Yagara and the Turrbal people of this land. Uh, here on Mianjin, the beautiful Brisbane River. And uh, I'd like to also pay our respects to all elders, past and present, and all those elders from all the countries that have arrived on this country and this continent and sharing this land with our Australian Aboriginal people and our Torres Strait Islander people. And thank you, Ray, for being part of this. Thank you. Now, for a lot of our listeners, they don't know who Dr. Ray Kirkhove is, and a brief introduction, but I'd like you to sort of introduce yourself. Um, I picked up a book, a friend actually gave me and said, you must read this book called The Battle of One Tree Hill. Um, the Aboriginal resistance that stunned Queensland. And I took it home and I read it in a couple of weeks and I was just absolutely blown away. Oh, good. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I was, you know, it really opened my eyes because um, I'd only finished reading The Vandemonium War by Nick Brodie, which focused on the Tasmanian sort of um, frontier wars, if you like. And then this was an interesting one about the resistance movement. Mm. And I got very excited about that. And then more recently, I met Ray up at the sunny coast at an event um, that Uncle Alan Parsons took me to, which was fabulous. And that was called Mapping Frontier World on the Sunshine Coast, Noosa Region. So this gives you a bit of a grounding of where this conversation today is going to go. But before we do, can you sort of give us a little bio of who you are? Yeah. Well, who's your mob? Where are you from? Oh, well, mob, well... Um I was born in Holland, in the uh, Netherlands, and my family came out here when I was four. Um, and, uh, yeah, grew up in Sydney and then uh, up here in Brisbane and then further the Sunshine Coast and then back and forward. That's basically where I've lived. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I got involved with Indigenous uh, issues through my studies. Uh, I'm, I'm a, I've got a doctorate, but not actually in this area. It actually was in religious history, strangely enough. But, uh, but I, I did anthropology and archaeology, and I, w I went on some digs and so on. And, and, and I got involved with Farah, which, with um, Uncle Bob Weatherall, uh, and that got me... And also with Renewing the Dreaming, of, uh, which was uh, Ted Gaboo Thomas. He was, ran this whole thing about trying to make white people uh, aware of uh, Indigenous spirituality. But I've sort of come back to this. I've done many, many different things in my life. And, mm -hmm. and I've come back to this uh, because it was something I did in the 80s. I've, I've gone back to it, which was uh, my interest was, was about basically site histories, like what happened right, at, right where you are in, in terms of Indigenous history. You know, what, what's the significance of wherever I'm living, whatever it is? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what, what were the sacred places that were local? What were the... Um, so what triggered that? What, what, what was... Um, when was your earliest thought about that? Yeah, I, I, I mean, this is, it, it's a crude, you could say, mm. you know, but um, it's because I, I, I've, I don't know if there's, I, I think it was just like, a, I was a bit of a loner as a, as, a, as, a, as a teen and I used to sort of sit in my, in, in my home at, uh, with my dad, I lived at my dad's place and um, I was often pondering, well, what happened right here, you mm. know, and, and I was trying to draw some sustenance from that and I, I think... Because we're always looking like, oh gosh, you've got to go, you know, 100,000 uh, kilometres away, you've got to go sort of somewhere international, otherwise there's no meaning. And I thought, well, but that can't be right. There must be things that, that happened right here. Mm. And I was also struck by the blandness of, of the education, like when you, when you go through the, the schooling, 
it, it didn't seem to have any reference points to... to there was a, sort of a vague thing about Captain Cook and that, but nothing really about, about what happened in, in the locality. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, a lot of my work has been about that. I've done... Uh, I work for currently for five different universities, um, for a lot of uh, government uh, jobs and um, with many different Indigenous groups and, um, gosh, anything from historical societies, a vast range of things. I'm basically an independent um, consultant. And we'll get on to some of those. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and um, uh, a lot of it is around uh, uh, site history, uh, reconstructing what happened at a site, but I've also had a strong interest in in, um, in conflict sites for that reason and, and reconstructing the frontier wars. And I also do a lot of stuff on, um, on reconstructing the... The, the material culture from different groups. Uh, I'm actually working at the moment on a big project out at um, Birdsville with, uh, about looking at what the fish traps were like around there. We've done similar with basketry and with um, uh, nets, the, the fish nets that were around here and uh, the canoes and so on, you know, and, that, and always with indigenous uh, groups, yeah. So with um, One Tree Hill, with mm. the Battle of One Tree Hill, what inspired you and Frank to... Pull that book together. Right. Well, at the time, I was working with the Bonner family, um, uh, and they'd asked me to do some preliminary reports. I've done a lot of, probably about 50-odd, 50, 50-60-odd 50, reports for different... Uh, uh, every time there's a development, like this was for the second range crossing that was going through Toowoomba. Mm-hmm. So they, and I got very interested in that because I remember going there on a, on a school trip in the 70s in, mm-hmm. in going to Toowoomba and seeing that, and it was pointed out that there was a battle here. And I approached Frank because he'd done his master's on, on this and had actually also done a couple of papers on it. Uh, but he hadn't looked at it for a long time. He just sort of left it in the, in the cobwebs. And I said, look, well, I found all this new stuff. You know, I'm working on this now, so why don't we get together and do a book? Uh, his approach is much more from a settler response because he's, that's his, his uh, training is about settler history. And mine was uh, obviously more about Indigenous because I've been working constantly with Indigenous groups. So it was a strange marriage when we, we wrote the book. And some people f- point that out in the chapters. They're sort of a bit uh, repetitive. <laughs> but, but the idea was, my passion for this was... was I've for a long time been really annoyed with the idea that, that uh, the Frontier Wars was just a, a sad story, that it was just a genocide. I thought, really, this, is, this sounds terribly racist. It's basically saying Aboriginal people can't organise themselves. They couldn't put up a good fight. They just sort of threw a few spears and went, went back to camp and, and just stupidly waited to be killed. And, and that whole narrative to me sounded wrong. It, it also sounded wrong from what I first read about all this. And I felt there's, there's something missing in this picture. So the reason I wrote that book was because I was fascinated by the fact it was a victory. It was, it was a case where Aboriginal people won against whites. Uh, I'd earlier done a similar thing with the Stratbroke people looking at uh, Narrow, which is, a, which is the battle site north of Moongalba near Ipswich. Near, sorry, near, near Dunwich. I don't know why I said Ipswich. Um, and that was, that was again, a, a, a victory. When I looked at it closely, it wasn't quite obviously put that way. And, and that was what I found too. When you le- read a lot of the white narratives, they don't actually say, well, they won. Very rarely do they say that. They kind of like just say, oh, well, it kind of was a stalemate. and didn't go anywhere. But I, I was very interested in this. And um, I also, when I was, uh, I, I got a fellowship at Griffith and I actually designed a whole website around this about trying to get the picture of the other side of the frontier. We, we talk about... Uh, Henry Reynolds talks about the other side of the frontier, and yet we still haven't 
reconstructed it very well at all. We, we, we've only got really the story of what white people did to Aboriginal people, but not, well, what were the alliances? What, what, what did Aboriginal people do in response? So my big interest has been in that. Um, I've got all these books here because a bit of a show and tell. Um, this, this is uh, Stephen Gapps, uh, who, who did the Sydney Wars, and um, uh, he invited me down to the Archaeology of War conference that they had, and we squeezed in like, like literally squeezed in like about 15 minutes. Most of the talk for the Archaeology of War, for the whole, this is the National Archaeology of War conference, was really about World War II, World War One, and they went on endlessly. It went on for like days on this. And we managed to just squeeze in a little bit about the frontier wars. And he was just writing this book. And he said, look, Ray, I've heard about your work. And so we, we sort of did a tag team thing of me talking about what I'd been picking up about resistance tactics. And he went on and wrote this, which, which actually became a, pretty much a, a bestseller. He's actually gotten a military award out of this. And he's gone and done other work on the, um, on, um, the Bathurst Wars. And his, his angle too was showing, yeah, that the resistance was really something. It wasn't, it wasn't this sort of like um, futile and, and um, fragmentary thing that we, we, we've put it at. Um, yeah. a, lot of this, a lot of this is because of the, um, the British narrative, do you think, um, in sense of not really addressing what had occurred in all the different pockets across Australia. Yeah, and that's something too, which is interesting. Uh, and I brought that up when, when I launched this, uh, this uh, booklet. Yep, the uh, Frontier Wars. Yeah, one. was the fact, and, and I've actually done a lot of this, is comparing it with, with how the narrative goes for North America. Mm. Uh, there, quite early, they, they were interested in the other side of the frontier, you could say. They, they wanted to, they wanted to American know. American Indians. Yes, and, yeah. 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 They wanted to know what was the motivation, what the tactics were. They would actually interview the, the war chiefs and that. We didn't do that here. We just treated them all as outlaws, you know. Um, it was a different mentality. I think Americans really appreciated rebels because they themselves were rebels. We didn't. We just saw everyone was a citizen or a non-citizen. So it's basically mm. you're, 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 you're in with the British or you're out, you know. Uh, that's interesting. That's yeah. very interesting. And, and in this book, that's the, the two, the father and son. You, mm. know, you touch on that and I'd never heard of them. Yeah. And what were Moppy they... and Maltagra. Yeah. Mm. Uh, well, I mean, there's, there's a bit, bit of a trend, and that's why I brought some of these books now, of actually... It's surprising because in America you've got, like everyone knows Sitting Bull and so on, there's, there's gigantic monuments to these characters. We've done nothing like that here and it's yeah. only just recently we're writing about it. Like this, I just did a review of this, Broken Spear, which is about Black Tom Birch, who, who according to this account by Robert uh, Cox, actually sort of started the whole thing rolling with the, uh, with the war in, in, in Tasmania and also saw the end of it. So he's a very important character. Um, this is the first actual reference book we have on him, mm. just put out, you know. And the, and the similar thing happened with um, Tongalong Tongalong Guter, who was the another Tasmanian. This was this came out just before Broken Spear. This one's by by Henry Reynolds and, um, and Nicholas Clements. But it's just ridiculous that we're only getting around to this now, and we haven't got several books on it. We've just got one, you know. I know. And, and there have been like little chapters or little. I mean, but nothing really done in, in detail. So. Um, uh, yeah, I think it's long overdue, and that's partly what this was partly the story of, of Maltagara and his and his father Moppy. Can you give the listeners a bit of an idea, a bit of a quick overview of the Battle of One Tree Hill? Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, this started when um, the settlers were actually coming up from what's now uh, 
the McIntyre River and, and that sort of New England area. They were coming up through there, and at the time, Moreton Bay settlement was just a penal colony, so there wasn't really much around. And what what's period now is Brisbane. This is this is the 1830s to 18. Well, actually, it was by then it was about 18. 40. So it was from about 1838, just after the Mile Creek Massacre, actually, they started coming up further north and they were invading and it was actually like a brutal blitzkrieg all through the Darling Downs. And they, they were basically stopped at the escarpment above Brisbane, which is the, the, the Great Dividing Range. It was a bit of a barrier, just like the Blue Mountains was for Sydney. There would have been a whole lot of different expeditions trying to work out a good, easy pass up and they couldn't really work one out. And that's What's, uh, the main thing that happened was, was that the, the people below, the, the groups below, the, the, the Yagra Yagrupal people, tried to stop that uh, invasion coming down the hill. Um, and how they did that was, was it, it started with uh, Old Moppy, who was, who was, he was actually a revered elder among a number of groups. Just before this had been the big uh, massacre at, at Kilcoy, and this had actually made a lot of the groups decide, well, okay, we're going to uh, do something against white settlement as a whole, which hadn't happened before. A lot of them were very incensed by that and they had these meetings in the what's now the Bunya Mountains and near there deciding what to do. And, and it seems like old Moppy was one of the main leaders there and one of the first acts seemed to have involved him, uh, which was actually pushing some of the settlers from one of the big runs at Esk into the, another run and, and basically taking their, their sheep. Uh, and he did the same uh, around what's now Grantham and Gatton and that area. But he was killed quite early in the, in the conflict because there was, there was a fellow called Cocky Rogers who was, who was actually uh, a manager of, of one of the sheep farms that was actually right on the edge of, of where the, if you know where Picnic Point is, the, the, the property was Eatonvale, which is now um, Toowoomba. And he actually took the sheep down, down the ridge there and, and he actually had, had shot at people on, on, on uh, Mount Tabletop, which is that volcano-looking hill that's, that's just past Toowoomba. And that probably seems, seems to have started the conflict because he did that for no particular reason, it, it, uh, just that he was afraid of the, them all crobbering up, the, up on the top of the hill. Because after that, and after the death of... Um, of um, Old King Moppy, his, the youngest son, which was Moltagra, said that he was going to kill six uh, white men as a, as a revenge. And they'd, Old Moppy had already galvanised a lot of the groups there into what they called the, the Mountain Alliance, which was a, an alliance that included people from basically New England all the way up to oh, the back of uh, the Black Hole Rangers, all, all that group, and out to so how many, how many would that have... Well, th there's, there's figures that say he could call up 1,500 men. Some even say he could call up 3,000. But there's no single action where they were ever used. But it's, it certainly was a lot of the groups there that you could maybe see it as sort of like the south-west arm of, of the whole lot of groups that were sort of incensed against the whites and were trying to do something at this time. Um, so their, their, their focus was obviously that area. And um, because, uh, I mean, although Multugra was, was a young man, he was actually quite smart. And, and that, that's what I found very interesting in this. He'd actually managed to get all the, all the big runs on the, on the Lockyer Valley in siege. And how they did that was they'd, they'd, you know, they'd, they'd basically surround the huts and make it impossible for people to move the, their sheep here and there. Uh, 
and so the, a number of the settlers actually all met in this inn, Bonifat's Inn, which is, which is sort of near Gatton now, and said, what do we do? A lot of them felt they were driven out of their, their runs. They couldn't, this went on for weeks. Uh, and they said, well, there hadn't been any supplies up to the, up to the, the uh, properties up on the, on the downs for a while. So they, they organised to get a big convoy of, of uh, bullocks, uh, drays. That was basically the way things were transported back then, was these, these bullocky drays. And they were probably, they, they said there were nine, or some say there were ten. And, and you've got to remember that each of these is, is pulled by a whole lot of bullocks, so it would have been a massive train. And th these were armed with, uh, they got 18 of their employees all armed to man it, and they thought, we're just going to force our way back up there and, because we need the supply route to keep going, because that, that's everything from your letters through to your, 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 your you know, tools and everything to, for the properties up there. And it's also the way the produce came down to the, the mountain. There had already been raids on, on, along this, and they thought, well, he's not going to raid this thing, you know, and we're just going to wait in the, in the inn and, you know, and everything will be good. But to their horror... At, at, the, at the, the steepest pinch between Mount uh, Tabletop and, and Mount Davidson, Maltugra's group, they, they were all hiding in the... In, there's a sort of a gully below there, and they just made a whole lot of hoo-ha and frightened... It, the, and they, they threw spears and made a lot of, lot of stuff, and they frightened all the, all the 18 men off, and they all ran back to, the, uh, to those that remained at the inn. And so they all got a party together, and it was sort of somewhere between 25 to about 55 people all came, some with pitchforks and whatever they had, some on horseback, some not, and ch uh, to sort of avenge, uh, you know, this, this, uh, this attack. And they found that the drays had all been smashed and the, the bullocks were gone and so on. But th this was a shock to begin with, that they mm. could ambush such a big uh, convoy and, and successfully drive it off. Um, but what happened then is, is they chased them through the, the bush. It went on for quite a while. And it seems like the Maltoga's men led this mock retreat up um, up uh, Mount Tabletop. They basically lured the, them after on to the steepest angle where it's, where it's very rocky. And from, from there, then they lay down their, their weapons and then they had already stockpiled stuff. But there's also, if you go, there's lots of rocks around. And they, and they hurled boulders and rocks down. Quite a few um, uh, people were, were badly injured. You know, the whites were injured. Um, a lot of their weapons, some, uh, some accounts say they were even thrown off horses and things. Uh, and uh, it was a defeat. They actually basically retreated and then waited. They waited for the police and they thought, well, okay, uh, Commissioner Simpson's going to come and he'll help us. He turned up with his little group and he found that the road had already been reblocked before he even got there. And then we, and he, and he looked, he had one look and said, nah, I can't do this. And he went back, you know. Mm -hmm. And so they all went back on the back roads to their particular uh, uh, estates. Um, try, and they went around and gathered a whole a lot of people from what we can work out somewhere between like about 70 to maybe 120 all like basically anyone who had a gun and all over Brisbane and uh, every available soldier and um, um, every available policeman and basically tried to drive Maltugger out from different spots so that went on for quite a long while and there were an, and what we discovered when we did the book was that there were a number of these other battles that didn't even get get mentioned. You know, the the the, the Mount Tabletop battle is, is remembered, and that was there were apparently several of, of those conflicts that, that were done from the top of the hill, um, but that one's remembered quite dramatically. But there were other little battles that they won too, that they uh, they fled into the bush and 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 the whites had to retreat and so on. 
But the main point is that it was a it really shocked the settlers at the time because these, these settlers were often the ones that, that, that then became really important graziers. They were, some of them became major business and, and political heads of, of uh, Queensland and they'd been defeated and they couldn't work out how that, how that could have happened. Um, they, they did manage to drive Multugra out but there was ongoing feuding that went on for like decades and we covered a lot of that in, in this book. The interesting thing I found when I looked at this is about like battles because um, people say, well, yeah, well, were they battles because uh, usually Aboriginal people didn't kill the whites. But that is when I, I, I've helped um, Christoph um, Dumminget, we're looking at, I've done quite a lot on traditional warfare and traditional battles from what we can work out, uh, they weren't usually intended to, to kill anyone. It was, that, that, that happened somewhat coincidentally, there might be a few. But it was more just to humiliate and drive off the opponent. If they wanted to kill you, then they'd, they'd go and do a raid, or you do you knock people off very targeted, one on one. And in fact, when we looked at this, there was about f at least 40 whites who were killed in that period. But it was all done on this sort of more like an like a target, like surprise killings all over the place. Mm. And that's where it gets complicated when you look at Aboriginal warfare because it is a bit unusual. You've got, uh, you do have battles, uh, there were skirmishes, but often whites got off pretty well compared to things elsewhere, you know. And that's because of the, it's mainly because Aboriginal people had this, this just idea about how you do a battle. You know, you, you would just basically intimidate and humiliate and denigrate the other side and then let them go. But, he, but whereas they would, avenge things on a, on a much longer basis. And that could actually take years and years. Um, Libby Connors, who wrote um, uh, Warrior, she, she told me one story about one case about this fella. He'd, uh, he'd been fiddling with the girls up somewhere past Caboolture. And um, then he had to move out of the area. It's a white fella, you know. And he stayed out of the area for many, many years because he thought, well, you know, people know, some of the locals will know, but then he eventually, decades later, he had to go for some reason past these that, oh, well, they would have forgotten now. As soon as he was there, he got speared, you know. Oh, is that right? <laughs> And this is the interesting thing, because I, I had a yarn with the, um, some of the Arunta people about the Collinson ma massacre. I met some of the people who were doing, working on the film that they were doing there, and, I, you know, and they were going on about all the people that got killed, the white, the, sorry, the, their people that got killed. And so I said to the fella, because he'd actually done the recording of a lot of the aunties and so on who had the stories. So this is interesting because it's like living, it's more recent history. And I, I said to him, well, okay, well, what did you guys do then, you know, after that? And that was interesting because he said, oh, yeah, we got them. We got most of them after that. And that's a whole untold story because it's often assumed that, oh, well, they just got massacred and then it was left like that. But no, there was, there was, there was the payback and they would actually... They, and some of them they got back, he, he said, like in places like Cooper Pedy, like way far distant from where, where the constant ma massacre had happened. He didn't, they didn't get everyone, but they, but they did, you know, they would remember these things and decades later there would be some, and, and it might just be written up in the news that so-and-so had tripped and fallen or whatever, but this was an, uh, interesting because a lot of the settlers knew this. They knew that there, that there was a long memory here and they wouldn't get away with, with stuff. And that, for me, is the interesting part of looking at the whole um, history of, of Aboriginal resistance. I'm, I'm actually currently working on a, a book which is looking at resistance tactics because it is a bit different from a lot of the rest of the world, but definitely there were, there were you know, ways that the, the, the things were done here. A lot of it was to do with 
uh, with sheep. I think I told you that whole story. Mm. Um, uh, basically taking over the pastoral industry by by driving off the shepherds and then just taking their, their whole their whole flock and then moving it to place. And then you'll find a lot of the frontier wars actually just the pioneers trying to find their sheep back and then having a fight over the flock and then getting some of the flock back and not all. Because they realised that, that, that sheep and cattle were the were the heart of what was keeping the, the economic the, drivers. It yeah. was it was basically all that was out there, mm. and uh, and they knew that if they took that, then settlement was stuffed. And for me, it was mm. interesting to notice that there was this ebb and flow of settlement. That people think it was just the bulldozing over the top, but no, actually, there were runs that were vacant for many many years that were sold and resold. There were whole areas that were devastatingly. Um, you know that that just weren't working. There was there was a lot of success on the side of Aboriginal resistance, and I really wanted to honour that more and and bring that more in the picture. Yes, I think you mentioned something about some of these battles um, in resistance movement lasted uh, like four years. I remember you mm. mentioned, and that. sometimes forty years. You know, is I mean, right? it would go. Mm. It's surprising, and and this is why I. I, I keen to do this sort of thing is because I, I feel like, okay, it's true, there were, there were, uh, even when I've looked at all the figures of like what an average conflict was between whites and Aboriginal people, there might be a few whites wounded and maybe one or two killed, and then, then the retribution would be like a, you know, a hundred slain or something, you know, so it was always brutal what whites did to Aboriginal people, um, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't uh, what they did wasn't effective. It was it was like a trickle effect, mm. and and guerrilla warfare does work like that way. They call it the battle of the flea, you know. Yeah. So, do you think as Australians we should understand that more, and mm. then even, you know, I say celebrate it to some large degree. In other oh, words, yes. celebrate that there were great warriors. Yes, definitely. Um, here, yeah, and we don't normally have them in our narrative, no. do we? You know? well, well, this, like, I'm glad to say with the council and with the community, uh, Aboriginal community at uh, Toowoomba, we actually put up uh, a sign at Duggan Park, which mm -hmm. gives the whole history that I helped uh, research and write. And I also helped with the group there. There's signs going up there at the moment at Picnic Point, which I helped with, which give that story too, and also give the dreaming story. Um, yeah, I mean, definitely it needs to be more in the landscape. And there's, we've got lots and lots of examples all over Australia you could do that with. You know? Yes. Um, now, you were mentioning that, you know, um, as yet you haven't met Nick Brody, and I've interviewed him once on the show. Mm. And then other people across Australia, you know, Western Australia, South Australia, yeah. all doing similar research and then finding these stories. Wouldn't it be great to build that into the sort of the cultural story um, you know, the good and the bad of this, but not just look at it as though there was this sort of, as you said, bulldozing approach. This mm. this took decades, you know, and, and literally well, probably yeah. 100 years in some cases. And, and sometimes it's brilliant. Like, um, the reason that I know that we're talking with um, Henry Reynolds and, and, and uh, Nicholas, uh, why they wrote that, was the fact that uh, it got down to just, like, there were at one point only 15 of them left, and they were still causing havoc for the Tasmanian <laughs> settlement. You know, I mean, it, it is insane when you think of the odds, and that, that's, for mm. me, is exciting, because, like, it's easy. If you've got a huge army and you've got tanks and things, OK, you're going to have a victory. But what is amazing and historically and just as an inspiration is people who will stand up to that with almost nothing. And they're much more interesting people than than someone with his 
you know, 100,000 warriors and tanks. Their resilience is incredible, yes, which is yeah, still it, showing it's, today. It, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a much more inspiring story for yes. me. Um, uh, and that's why I think these characters need to come out more. And, I, and I, it's funny because I've often looked at Australian history and really the only interesting history is this is the indigenous stuff you know yeah. and i that sounds like a, a slander against white history but it's just it's just when the chips are down and w when you see what people do when the chips are down it's very interesting and 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 people who who overcome enormous challenges that's a real amazing story whereas uh, you know to sort of say well okay i came here as a white settler and i lived a nice cushy life and then i did this yeah, well, you know, is that interesting, you know? Mm. It's, um, no. And I think it's important because, like, um, for uh, the Indigenous families I talk to, too, they're, they're often very excited when we put this stuff out because they say, well, it's just not, you know, we've been talking about this in our families and it hasn't been out there. Um, it's a source of pride, you know? It's, it's, um, it's it, you might think, a lot of people say, oh, you can't, it's dark stuff, but... Every continent has had a dark history. Every, every place you can turn to in the world has had a history born in blood. Uh, Australia, for some weird reason, thought it wasn't. Um, it's I don't think like we're, we live in a bit of a delusion about that. Exactly. Yeah, and, and almost like um, we can't see the virtue of it. Which, if I come from war-torn Europe, my family lived right in the middle of, of World War Two. We, you know, one part of my family were killed for being Jewish. So all my German I look very German, and a lot of them were in Germany. A lot of them were Jewish, and they, they're no longer. I've only, and then another part were in the underground. And there were other parts that were traitors and joined the Nazis. Mm. Now, that happened in my family. Mm. And um, so I, I know what that feels like. And I, and I know, like, Holland was bulldozed. It was, it was, there was so much it was bombed, it was gone. So I know what that feels like. Um, but I, I also think you can still draw in, you know, you can say, oh, well, that was terrible. Yeah, yeah, it was. On the other hand, you can say, well, gosh, look, look at what people do when the chips are down. Look, look at what they do when they've got enormous challenges. And I think that's why people are interested in conflict history. Uh, I think that's sort of something we can get out of it too. It's about like courage, initiative, um, in, you know, genius, like some of this, the, the planning that went on. I didn't mention that, but with Multagra, one thing he did was um, change the tactics. They, they started to stop uh, killing uh, whites and they just decided that they would just kill as much as the cattle and, and sheep as they could because they thought well, okay we can't do that and they, they there's accounts at the time that said they, they wanted to they seemed to want to destroy all the livestock in the entire district because they knew that if they did that then they would then the whites would have to leave you know have no so, food yeah 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 mm. that's true mm. do you think in the history like looking fast forward i know none of us can sort of have a time mm. capsule and go forward into 20 years but with all this sort of merging away and coming out, you know, through the, the mm. books and the range that you've even brought here today and the work that Nick's doing, you're doing, Henry Reynolds has done, all this collective work, do you think in 20 years this will be openly discussed in schools, you know, as an oh, education... Yes. It's already uh, like starting. It's already starting, you know. Yeah, so the trickle's there. Uh, yeah, it, it, and it's, you know, it is a... Like uh, uh, we'll see that uh, my co-author for this, mm -hmm. at Frank, he did a he did a children's book, you know. Mm. So and this is a great thing because you know the uh, uh, publisher from this, he was telling me how he reads this to his grandchildren, you know. I'm thinking so already his grandchildren are growing up knowing about Maltagra, you know, and um, that'll probably become the norm. It'll probably be the 
inspiration. You know, I find it very interesting. A lot of white people find these guys more exciting than <laughs> than their own bush rangers, and they are more exciting. Yeah, you yeah, know, they, they, yeah. they, some of these lives are amazing. What the, the the different changes they were. Even if you look at Triganini, I mean, yeah. she did from woe to go. I mean, what a life, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's a lot there, I think, that can be done. I think it's great. No, mm. I think it's also a way for the healing and the unification of this mm. country, you know, to get a better understanding of what's happened, yeah. what's occurred, mm. so that we can actually heal it, tell the stories in a, you know, in a, in a, a way that we don't have to feel um, that sort of convict guilt, oh. know, that early settler guilt. And well, as I said to you, in a way, it's just racism. Yes. You know, it's racist. When we, when we, if we're going, oh, I'm going to pity Aboriginal people, well, what is that saying, you know? Mm, I mean, exactly. like, oh, you poor things, you know? I mean, no, they weren't. They did a damn good job of... Uh, they, they almost... A number of times they almost brought the, the colony to its heels, and that is amazing, considering that, that, that they were completely outnumbered and they, there, was a, there was a much vast array of military technology arrayed against them, mm. and they still managed to make a real dent in things. I, I often point this out, like, we're in Brisbane at the moment, and... Um, and people say, oh, you know, look, so much was ruined. And I said, do you know that Brisbane is still shaped by Aboriginality, you know? That, that if you think that it got wiped out, well, have a look at where all the suburb names are. They're, mm. they're still exactly the place names that were there. Um, the, the roads are where the pathways were. The, um, a lot of the parks are where the old um, camps were. And basically the suburbs grew around them. They were around, you know, there were water holes in the camps, you know? So actually, you know, despite everything, uh, the imprint is still there and, and it, it's actually still with us. So it, it, it wasn't like the great, you know, um, the invaders were invaded in a way, you know? And it's such <laughs> a strong story of mm. um, adversity, in face of adversity, yeah. that mm. strength, you know, mm. that, um, yes, they may be a minority, but they've got a big voice, yeah. you know, mm. and, mm. and we, we want to help that voice. That's what the work I feel that and, you're and you doing. Don't, and you don't know if it'll be a minority forever, you know, mm. uh, well, you look at Latin America, um, people don't realise that the, with all the pandemics and that that happened back in the, uh, with the conquest there, the population fell rapidly. And, there were, and all these white um, people, just like happened in Australia, they came over, all the Spanish and so on. But then it bounced back, mm, you know? Yeah. And, now, and now you've got the native population there and also the, the what they call the mestizo, which are kind of half Spanish and whatever. They're, they're the majority and, and, and the minority is the white. So yes. we don't know if you came back in 100 years time what Australia would look like. This, the Aboriginal population is still the fastest growing yeah. minority group in, in, in Australia. It doubles regularly in, in like every five years. Yes. So, And it's becoming yeah. more aware. It's getting back in touch with its mm. source because that was sort of lost basically because they were mm. you know, put decimated. into the missionaries and decimated yeah. and not told mm. not to use mm. the language. I'm seeing this more and more every day. It's, oh, yeah. it's coming back, mm. which is really good. Now, all these books... I've got them, I'm going to have them up on our Yarn Up page. Mm -hmm. So for people, they can want to see a little bit more detail about all the books in front of Ray here today. So we've got all the recommendations of these books. So you can delve deeper. There's no reason you can't go and learn more about all of this stuff. We've already got uh, two pages up with a whole host of books, including yours and all, all your other ones you've done with the campsites. Yeah, yeah. I've got, like, a lot of my stuff when it comes to resistance wars, I've just sort of had little bits of... Oh, I wanted to mention this. Uh, Caleb, who's a... So this is great because you've got an Indigenous writer writing about his people's uh, resistance, you know, mm. and he did a very... Uh, Callum, um, 
Clayton Dixon. He did a very uh, thorough job of that, and he's still doing that at the moment. Um, so there's, there's, there's definitely more, and this is, this is what has to happen more in future, more and more, uh, you know, Indigenous writers yes. writing about their own history. But some of this is just like, uh, you know, you've got to remember that it's not going to be the last book that's ever written on, on, on any of this. You know? Yes. And we've got to start somewhere. Mm. That's really good. Mm. Ray, I really appreciate you coming on today. It's fabulous. There's just a depth of wisdom and knowledge and new narratives that, you know, hopefully in the broader spectrum, a lot of people are now enlightened to, that they actually come on board and start reading some of this, starting to understand Australia better, you know, through the research and the work you've done. I think it's fabulous. Oh, thank you. Um, I know for anyone that wants to um, help us with uh, Walking Through Worlds, we've got uh, a couple of sites. Uh, Patreon, we are, um, you can join us once a month, $3, $6 a month, $10 a month. Um, or you've got Buy Me A Coffee. That's another thing, $3 a month. Someone bought me a coffee. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's all at the website, www.walkingthroughworlds.com. And uh, come and subscribe, come and listen to our podcast. We release every week. Appreciate you having you on. Thank you, and, and thanks to all your listeners and, and uh, any of the Indigenous community out there. Um, if I've said anything wrong, it's because I'm ignorant, but I'm trying. Thank you. <laughs> thanks, Ray. Thank you so much. Fantastic.